terms of David, the uh, the signing of the contract the same month that the Florentine Constitution was reconstituted uh, is was a very deliberate act on part of both patron and artist to associate the project with reviving the Florentine Republic. And Michelangelo writes on his drawing for the for the statue as David does with with his sling, so I do with my drill, and that's what actually wound up giving the book its title. That voice you just heard was uh, Dr. Victoria Coates, our guest today on the Radio Free Acton podcast. She is a PhD, uh, art historian, uh, advisor to Senator Ted Cruz, and most recently, and perhaps most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but importantly, a speaker here at the Acton Lecture Series for fall of 2016. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, by the way. Uh, my name is Mark Vandermoss, your host here on Radio Free Acton. Good to be with you once again on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Uh, Dr. Coates based her lecture here at Acton uh, on her 2016 book entitled David's Sling, A History of Democracy in Ten Works of Art. And I will be joined by Paul Bonicelli, our Director of Programs here at Acton, to uh, talk a little bit more with Dr. Coates about the relationship between art and democracy in just a few moments here on the podcast. Uh, first of all, I do want to take the opportunity to let you know about another event that's coming up here at the Institute at our Mark Murray Auditorium. On Monday, November 21st, 2016, doors open at 6.30 and lecture begins at 7 p.m. Alex Chediak will be with us speaking on the topic of beating the college debt trap. This is a really important topic for anybody with uh, young kids or kids who are heading in the direction of college, or if you're just a person who wants to get to college. Maybe you're a young person who wants to, to do the college experience, but you don't want to come out of it completely broke. Uh, Alex Chediak has, well, he's written a book on it, Beating the College Debt Trap, and he will be here Monday, November 21st uh, at 7 p.m. Doors open again at 6.30. Register online at acton.org slash events. With that out of the way, let's uh, move on to our interview uh, with Dr. Victoria Coates here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Well, I, I'm really excited today to be joined uh, on Radio Free Acton by a couple of, of folks here in the Acton studios. First of all, we'll, we'll go with the less important person first. Sorry, Paul. Uh, Paul Bonicelli is with me uh, here at the mic, and Paul is uh, Director of Programs here at the Acton Institute. Paul, how are you doing? Great. Good to be with you. It's good to have you here in the studios. Uh, we we got to get you down here more often. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, across the table from Paul, and we're very excited to have her, uh, Victoria Coates, who is with us today as part of the Acton Lecture Series. Uh, delivering a lecture uh, on art uh, as part of our series today. And, and uh, Dr. Coates is a, a PhD in art history, I believe. Is that is that correct? And yes, it is. You you have an interesting biography in that you, you have a book here that I'm looking at that you've written on art history, and it connects art history to democracy. But aside from being a PhD in, in, in art history, you're also a, a political person in that you have been uh, an advisor to Senator Ted Cruz. You've worked uh, on a book actually with Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, you've got quite a, a catalog of of, of uh, contacts in the background. And, and the question, I guess the first question, the obvious biographical question is, how does an art historian become 
uh, a potential foreign policy advisor to a presidential candidate? Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to be at Acton. Um, the short answer is that art history is just a specialized kind of history, so it's no different than having any kind of historian involved. And I have been very fortunate to work with people who have a strong historical perspective and think that we will deal best with the events of the present if we've learned very carefully from the past. You've you've written this book, and, and the title is David Sling, A History of Democracy in Ten mm-hmm. Works of Art. Beautiful book, a very nice hardcover edition. And uh, you've, you've laid out ten works of art that you... Uh, associate with democratic societies, and the claim is that uh, democratic societies help to produce uh, the, these grand works of art. One of the, one of the works of art that you've, uh, you've highlighted is Michelangelo's Statue of David, which is obviously an incredibly beautiful statue, an incredibly beautiful piece of sculpture. And I think most people, when they think of David, they don't think of politics or democracy or republics. But uh, the statue of David was created by Michelangelo in the context of the Republic of Florence in Italy. And your assertion is that, well, this, there, there's actually a political subtext, in a sense, to the creation of David. Can you talk a little bit about that? Explain why this piece of art has uh, significance for those who are interested in democracy. Sure, and that's actually the key to the, to the project, which is that David Sling tells the stories of what are well-known works of art the stories themselves are not well known. We don't know why these things were produced in their original context. And with with David being such an aesthetic object, a sort of icon of, of beauty, that the political context, the original context of the statue has been almost completely lost. And what part of the criterion for inclusion was for each of the 10 works, including the David, is that the very self-conscious desire to commemorate the democracy was part of the creative process. And in terms of David, the the signing of the contract the same month that the Florentine constitution was reconstituted uh, was a very deliberate act on part of both patron and artist to associate the project with reviving the Florentine Republic. And Michelangelo writes on his drawing for the for the statue as David does with with his sling so I do with my drill and that's what actually wound up giving the book its title uh, that the, you have the artist associating the creative act with uh, David's act of d- defeating the great Philistine giant Goliath and that I think really crystallizes this particular moment and makes Michelangelo's purpose very very clear. This is a topic very fascinating to me because um, I totally agree with Victoria about the role of history. Um, History is the substance of um, uh, the thoughts and the ideas and the philosophies that give us the ability to think about the future. And um, I'm intrigued by all the ways that we can appreciate art uh, has embedded in it ideas. It is meaningful. It can celebrate good things. It can also uh, celebrate bad things. It can evoke uh, the best out of citizens, and it can evoke some negative things. But um, one of the things that stands out, and it uh, gets covered in the book David Sling, uh, is this uh, famous painting, uh, Guernica, uh, the destruction of this uh, Spanish city. Um, How is it that someone like Pablo Picasso, who is, apart from his art, uh, a pretty detestable human being, how is it somebody like him could produce a painting that really helps us reflect on the importance of uh, self-government and democracy? Well, I think that's that's a critical question, Paul, because it gets 
to the heart of the fact that this is not a linear, inevitable progression, that we are not all moving toward a more perfect free state uh, just by, by the course of time, but rather that democracies are hard won. You have to protect them constantly, and they are made up of many, many imperfect people. As far as I'm concerned, there's only one perfect person. Um, and in this case, uh, certainly, I think there's a reason the French Revolution chapter is called the best and the worst. It kind of captures that that dichotomy between an ideal of a republic and then the very flawed human beings who were involved in trying to create it. And in Picasso's case, I mean, he he admitted that the painting for him was an outlier, that he generally was not a particularly political person, but he was a passionate Spanish patriot, and he did believe in democracy for Spain. And this painting inspired him, I think, to a whole different almost type of art, uh, that, that this kind of monumental mural painting the, addressing a contemporary event uh, and his deep hatred for the fascists all came together to create this extraordinary image, uh, which is a protest against tyranny. And so I think even although the the instrument in terms of Picasso was imperfect, he was able to rise above in many ways his own limitations to create this particular work. The irony being that he would not see the similar threat from totalitarian communism. Right, definitely. Um I took something for granted a moment ago in my comment, and I wonder if you would comment on it. Um, it's more basic. Why does great art um, evoke such emotion in human beings? Is, is this something physiological going on? Is it um, purely emotional? What is happening when people are seeing, and you and I have talked about this, but for me, there is no greater work of art than the David, even if it had no meaning behind it. It, it means even more to me now that I know that it does, but it is just um, you catch your breath when you see it. And if you don't, I think there's something wrong with you. So so what is going on there as an art historian looking at this? What what have you seen that psychologists and other people will talk about? Well, I think, I think that the response to spectacular beauty is a a part of the human condition. And I think it's it's a wonderful one that you could have an object that even if you don't know what it is, pretty much every human can look at it and say, yes, that is fine, that is excellent. Uh, and you can admire it on that very visceral level. Now, those those objects are pretty few and far between, um, that, that that is the best of it. And what's particularly great about the David is the engagement it has with the viewer. And I think that's part of it, that, that great works of art involve you in some way, so you feel part of whatever is going on, whatever its purpose is. And then I guess... Uh, sort of finally, there is this sense of communicating with, with previous generations, with less so obviously with contemporary art, but with historical pieces, this sense of gazing on what other people have seen and experienced and sharing that common human experience is, is a very profound thing. Um, and so I think when you bring all three of these together, it's when you truly have a masterpiece. Well, that's, that's interesting. I think that's true. Um, what do you think is happening when an artist who know, who has a, a meaning in mind, a desire, they want to evoke something, they want to provoke something, um, what is happening with their use of, of beauty? Um, are they trying to uh, provoke people intellectually or is it just emotionally? What is it that they're trying to do and who would you uh, cite as examples of artists who understood exactly what they were trying to do? 
um, and succeeded at it. Well, I mean, beauty is a tool like any other, and so is so is the opposite. So is brutishness, and it it made me just as you were saying that think about the second chapter and the Brutus, uh, which is a deliberately ugly statue. Um, one of the things the Romans figured out are with realistic portraiture, which did not exist before the Romans, was that they could celebrate themselves through documenting their physical flaws, that they didn't need to be beautiful. The Greeks were always perfected. They never wanted to show the individual. The Romans go in the opposite direction, in some ways as a reaction against the Greeks. And those objects, though, are no less profound. Uh, you And again, you have a sense of great connection with them because they look so human. And then you realize you're also getting a message about the type of person Brutus was, a very austere, stoic, uh, intense Republican. Um, and we're talking about Brutus, one of the founders of Rome. One of the founders right. of Rome. That, 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 you know, that, that ancient work is, is a, in a way the counterpart to the beauty. And in, in a way, the Guernica is as well. I mean, deliberately ugly, broken, fractured to convey a certain message. So I think, you know, beauty is certainly a a desirable quality and St. Mark's, the Parthenon, Rembrandt's Night Watch, Monet's Nymphaeus Cycle, these are all spectacularly beautiful works of art that is a very compelling component, but it's not exclusive. Right. It, does the French Revolution give us examples of, of art as propaganda, not uh, meaning at all cheap and 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 not uh, beautiful and not excellent, but but literally as propaganda. Well, I think all all ten of these works of art are propaganda at their heart, and I don't see that as a dirty word. I mean, they are trying to persuade to commemorate in the French Revolution David's role as the director of propaganda. That was his title. Um, Jacques Louis David, the the painter, uh, who becomes a very politicized figure very close to Robespierre uh, and to Marat, and that when he takes time off from his busy career as director of propaganda to paint the death of Marat, it's a very personal statement because they were friends, but at the same time, David, who as a revolutionary rejected the classical tradition, the Catholic tradition, was trying to create a new visual vocabulary of art that would be appropriate to the revolution. So I think his very personal participation in political events and then desire to create this new visual vocabulary, maybe make that painting the most overtly propagandistic. Right. Um, and he didn't remain uh, a propagandist for the revolution. Uh, what, what happened next? Well, he didn't start out as that either. He started out trying to become the first painter to the king, uh, then <laughs> votes to, for both Louis and Marie Antoinette's decapitation, uh, becomes the painter of the revolution, and then after the revolution becomes Napoleon's first painter, and after the fall of Napoleon, goes into self-exile in Brussels. So he, he is a political chameleon. And without offending every artist uh, within the sound of my voice, which I might, um, does this is this typical of the artist mentality uh, that that there is a greater emotional uh, response attaching oneself to great figures? Because you read about his his views of Napoleon, and it was just rapturous about. And this man is the opposite of what you know the revolution was supposed to be about. Um, we hear people talk about emotional artists all the time. Is that at work here? And does that mean we shouldn't really be able to trust the way they want to propagandize about political or social affairs? 
To some extent, although I think David was a profoundly French patriot, and I think that he believed in the revolution, he saw the failure of the revolution, and he very much thought that Napoleon was going to fix things. Uh, He also saw a great patron, and it's a business. And so I think both of those are, are at work with him as they would have been with Phidias or Rembrandt. So many more questions that we could ask, but we, I, I know you need to get on the road to the airport, and we want to we respect your time. Victoria Coates has been with us today here at Radio Free Act, and the book is David Sling, A History of Democracy in Ten Works of Art. And this is uh, book one of, of a couple books. You're, you're looking at a few more coming out as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we go? We're going to try. Uh, we're going to try with a history of Christianity and 12 works of art called Seeing the Light, and then hopefully one on the individual and self-portraiture. So it's sort of a Western civilization series. Fascinating series of books, and you can, of course, pick them up. Uh, any online retailer, Amazon.com will have it. And uh, Victoria, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you here at the Acton Institute. Thank you. I've really enjoyed my visit. And that brings to a close another edition of Radio Free Acton. Uh, I want to offer my thanks again to uh, Paul Bonicelli for joining me here in studio uh, and partaking in the interview, and and of course to Victoria Coates as well, who uh, was a fantastic guest all day long at Acton and a fantastic guest here on the podcast. The book, for those with interest, is entitled David's Sling, A History of Democracy in Ten Works of Art. It's a beautiful book uh, and a very interesting book as well, and you can pick it up, of course, Amazon.com, other online retailers, and hopefully they'll have it at your local brick-and-mortar bookseller as well. Uh, But Dr. Coates, once again, thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you well as you go about talking about your book and and hope it does very well. Uh, Thanks as well to uh, all of you for joining us here on Radio Free Acton. This is, of course, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy uh, the Acton Institute Power Blog, if you think that the views that you hear here uh, and the things that you read over on the blog are worthwhile, hey, Spread the links around. You can find us uh, all the time with news information and commentary on a, on a daily basis every week at blog.acton.org. And uh, we hope that you'll spread around the podcast links as well. In the meantime, I want to wish you well. Hope you have a great day. And we look forward to talking again on the next edition of Radio Free Acton. We'll see you later, folks. Have a good one.